0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Roanert Park area. Now, I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Matthew chapter 26, and today we do begin Uh, this 26th chapter, which is a prelude to the death of Christ. In chapter 21, Jesus entered into Jerusalem for the last week of his life, and it was during that very same week that Israel celebrated their greatest feast day, which was the Feast of Passover. And that was actually an eight-day feast, with Passover being the first day of it, and then followed by seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem on Sunday, which is the same day that the lambs for sacrifice were brought into Jerusalem. And then on Thursday, those lambs were sacrificed and taken into the homes of the Jews to be eaten. The Passover plays a very significant part in the death of Christ, what took place in this week. And we're going to see that as we go through this chapter. Now, I'd like for you to look at the first five verses... Of Matthew 26 as we begin this new section in Matthew's Gospel. As I said, this is a prelude to the cross, and I can assure you that we are not going to speed through this particular chapter as we study it. So if you'd stand with me, please. Chapter 26 and verse number 1. We stand for the reading of God's Word. And it says, "...and it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples." Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people under the palace of a high priest who was called Caiaphas, and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. Father, we thank you for your word for the reading of it. I just ask, Lord, that you'd open up our understanding to your word and help us, Lord, to learn something that will help us today. And we know that reading the word of God and studying it always will. So we thank you, Lord. Thank you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I titled my message today, Sovereignty Versus Insanity. Now, sovereignty is a word that you often hear me use from this pulpit. I I scarcely think that there is a Sunday that goes by that somewhere in either the preaching, the singing, the prayers that we pray, uh, the sermons that I preach, that somewhere we talk about God's sovereignty. I think it's a very important word that we use when we speak of, in a concept, when we speak of God's sovereignty. And I think that might, it might even be necessary because there are so many churches today where On any given Sunday morning, what they have to say has nothing at all to do with the sovereignty of God. And even if it is mentioned, there's just lip service paid to the idea that it is our eternal God who controls all the affairs of this life. Now, as we go through this chapter, chapter 26 and beyond, we're going to see the sovereignty of God at work in many different places. On the other hand, the word insanity is not a word that I use very often. I don't often call people insane, although I do think that there is a certain amount of insanity for somebody who refuses to believe in Jesus Christ. There's kind of an insanity there when a person says that he's not a Christian. And then there are also Christians that exhibit traits of insanity, when they don't serve the Lord with all their heart, their soul, and their mind. I mean, when you consider all that Christ has given for us you, and done for us, you, you have to say it, it must be a little bit insane not to dedicate everything that we are and we have to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, if you're faced with an eternity in an everlasting fire and a hell that goes on forever and ever where you'll be tormented day and night, I think it would be quite insane for you to choose to go there rather than not to pay any cost that it would take to avoid that terrible place. And it is insane, or doubly insane, for a person to die without Jesus Christ when that prospect of hell can be avoided by simple faith in him. And that means that you'd never have to suffer hell ever. Never would you have to suffer hell. It's not for people who believe in Jesus Christ. And this is exactly the choice that we find presented in this passage today. When the religious leaders decided that they were going to crucify Christ, they chose hell over heaven. And that seems to be an insane choice. And I think that the same is true for you today. If you walk out of this service after hearing this sermon and you choose to remain in unbelief you've made an insane choice and if you leave here today and your friends or relatives may ask you what did you learn in church today then you can say that the pastor called you a complete nutcase but i don't want to be that unkind to you and so i'm going to say that there is a reason for your insanity and that is you have been blinded to the gospel of jesus christ by a supernatural power that is far beyond your capabilities And so I would just pray that by the grace of God, your eyes would be opened today and that God would put Satan down and that you would turn to faith in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'd like for you to notice first in our lesson today, number one is history's pinnacle. Since the beginning of time, the world's history had been moving towards this one day of this one week of this one year in Jesus' life. And through that time, there were, of course, many countless days of great significance. I mean, you think, how important was it the sixth day? How important was the sixth day when God created man? And how important was it the day that the flood came and God destroyed the world with that flood? And how important is it the day that... Israel was delivered from Egypt, and Moses stood there in front of the Red Sea, and he parted those waters, and the people went across on dry ground. And then what about the day that Jesus was born? His birth was significant enough that it divided time. All events in history are reckoned according to Christ's birth, whether they occurred before Christ's birth, B.C., or whether they occurred A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. And by the way, whether the secular world wants to admit this or not, the reckoning of time on domini, in the year of our Lord tells us that we do believe that Jesus Christ is alive. And then if you think of the reason for Christ's birth and why it's so important, the importance of it is actually established by what he did in his death. The birth of Christ would have been no more important than that of any other person in the world, any other religious leader, if it had not been for what he did in his death. And that is that he, had, he was capable of doing something that no one is able to do. And so the world doesn't reckon time according to the birth of Socrates, nor to the birth of Buddha. It doesn't reckon time, reckon time according to Muhammad or anyone else, but it's the recognition that Jesus Christ did something in his death that was far beyond the capabilities of any other person. He is our Lord. He is the Lord that died for our sins. He's the one who arose from the dead. And the reason that we say, on O Domini, in the year of our Lord, is because he is the Lord who is alive. Now what happened in these chapters of Matthew is the pinnacle of history. And if you're an unbeliever, you have to take some thought for this person, Jesus Christ, and how that he is able actually to control the whole history of man. And I would say that it would be quite insane for you to ignore Christ when he's the one that divides time, as I just said a moment ago. He's the one that can die for sin. He's the one who's done what no other person can do. It's insane to ignore Jesus Christ if you have any reason beyond that of a ficus. Now, the pinnacle of history is that Jesus was a sacrifice and that he is the one who... in an extraordinary act of goodness and divine compassion, bore the penalty of our sins. He was man and he was God. He was the son of God who was born in the likeness of sinful flesh. And if he had not been both God and man, then his death would have been no more meaningful than the death of any person that loses his life for a cause that he can't win. So you need to come to grips with that. That the history of Jesus is written in the pages of Scripture. And you would be insane not to consider that the Holy Bible has this universal reverence for it because it reveals the history of Jesus Christ, who in turn governs the history of the world. Now, next, I would like you to note Jesus' prediction. Verse number one, and it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, Ye know that after two days the feast is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. And I don't think that I can go further in this passage without mentioning the huge disconnect that occurs between chapters 25 and 26. And if you haven't been with us in these recent studies as we've gone through Matthew's gospel, especially chapters 24 and 25, I'm afraid that you're not going to be able to see, perhaps you won't see, what's so apparently clear to us that there is a disconnect between these two chapters. It says here, when Jesus had finished... All these sayings. And, and that reference is to the teachings of chapters 24 and 25. Where Jesus told his disciples about the second coming. And we can distill all that information that we find in those two chapters. Into this one verse of Matthew 25:31, When the son of man shall come in his glory. And all the holy angels with him. Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Now you and I read that we look back on this, on this chapter and we read it with full knowledge of what happened in the next chapters. We know all about chapter 27 and about chapter 28. And we can understand how that Jesus would say that he's coming in power and glory and how that he would say that he would sit on a throne and judge the world. We know how that can happen because of another day, another significant day that's revealed to us in the 28th chapter that says that Jesus arose from the dead. We see that, we understand that, we look back on it, we can read that. But imagine that you're one of these disciples and you've just been through all of this teaching of chapter 25 but you don't have any knowledge of chapter 28. Now the prediction of verse number 2 would seem to be insane And don't think that sometimes the people thought that Jesus was insane. Let me take you back to Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus made some audacious statements and did some audacious acts. And I call your attention to this, his claim to be the Messiah, and that he said that his wisdom was greater than Solomon. And then after he said that, look at what happens in verse number 46. While he had talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Now that statement seems to be a little bit innocuous until you understand why that they wanted to speak with him. The reason they did was because they had come for an intervention. Jesus was talking crazy talk. I mean, how insane was it for him to say things like this? I'm greater than Solomon. I am wiser than Solomon. Who in the world is wiser than Solomon? And so they came to speak with him and to take him away, lest someone should have him committed. Now between chapters 25 and 26, there's this disconnect because the disciples heard that he was coming in power and great glory. And then they heard there's going to be a crucifixion. And those things don't really line up for someone who claims to be the almighty king. Now, of course, they'd heard Jesus talk about his death before, but it seems like those times never registered. Three times before this, he said that he would be killed, and he told them who would do it. You can look at those passages again. uh, Chapter 16, verse 21. Chapter 17, verses 22 to 23. Chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. And let me just read to you that last one, chapter 20 and verse 17. And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. And so they'd heard it before. And I strongly suspect that after the teachings of chapters 24 and 25, they couldn't believe that a crucifixion would actually happen. Now, he told them that he would die. He told them that he would rise again. But we know that they held out no hope for the resurrection because three days after he'd been in the grave, we find the disciples totally despondent and it was difficult for them to believe even after they heard the message that he'd risen from the grave. They were doubtful about it. And so when they heard chapter 26 in verse number 2 and they compared that with chapter 25 and verse 31, they thought that something is wildly crazy. How can both of these things be true? How can he come in power and glory and yet suffer the death of crucifixion? And I think that that probably sounded a little bit insane. But Jesus' prediction was right on target, and that's because of our next point, and that is God's plan. Verse number two, Jesus said, you know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Now let me take you back to the dawn of creation. And uh, I care very little that you might think that I'm insane because I believe that the World was created in six literal days in 24-hour periods. I care very little that you might think that I'm insane because I believe that the astronomical possibilities that evolution could happen is just a tiny bit unreasonable. This world is not the product of billions of years of random occurrences. This world was made by a sovereign God with plan and with purpose. And if you want to know that purpose... I can give it to you in one word. It's the word glory. The reason that this world was created was for the glory of God. Now if you have designs on climbing a mountain in Tibet to reach a guru who can tell you the meaning of life, save your money, take a cruise, because I can tell you for free what the meaning of life is and that's the glory of God. The meaning is the glory of God, that's all it ever was and it's all it ever will be. And so if you don't glorify God with your life, which is the purpose of your life, then you're not fulfilling your purpose. You're taking up space. Now it's kind of insane then to waste your time reading books of philosophy and meditating with your legs wrapped around the back of your neck trying to figure out what is the meaning of life. All you really need to do is come and ask me and I'll tell you about it. But anyway, it was on day six that God created man and he breathed into him the breath of life and the Bible says that man became a living soul. And I don't know how long it was after that, but apparently it wasn't very long that Adam sinned against God and Adam forfeited his life. But then, in stepped God. And in a symbolic gesture, he killed animals and he took skins and he clothed Adam and Eve. And so thus God established the principle that there must be a blood sacrifice in order for sins to be forgiven. So there, God revealed a part of his eternal plan, that it would take the shedding of blood, that's how he would forgive sins, and that's how guilt would be set aside forever. And we notice who is the one who did that. God is the one who did it. Now, Adam made an attempt to make things right with God, and this is symbolic as well. Adam made fig leaves to cover his nakedness. That is symbolic of your attempts to try and make yourself right with God, which is never going to happen because God is the one who has to do this. So God would not accept Adam's attempt. God says the shedding of blood. That's the only way that this can happen. And so what I'm telling you is that the death of Jesus Christ was planned by God. And that's the reason that Jesus could reveal that he was going to die. And if you haven't heard this before, which if you come to Berean, you do know this, but if you haven't, brace yourself for this, because the one who was going to kill Jesus Christ was God. And make no mistake about this. He used human instrumentality, and we see that at work in this passage, but make no mistake that it was God who actually planned this. And how do I know that? Revelation 13 verse 8 says that Jesus Christ is the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, there was no one but God. So God had to be the one that planned it. And of course, that predates the crucifixion in chapter 27. And what God did, or what God would do, was pictured hundreds, thousands of times, actually, in Israel... And there was one particular sacrifice that was tied particularly to what Jesus would do on the cross and that, that is, and, the, and that Jesus is the Lamb of God and that is the Passover. Now the Passover begins in Exodus with Moses and Israel as they're ready to leave Egypt. Egypt is a type of sin, it's a type of the old life, it's a type of being in bondage to sin, of being lost without Jesus Christ. And Pharaoh let Israel go because of Passover. And for the Christian, Satan's power is defeated. And the reason that we're released from the bondage of our sins is because Jesus Christ is our Passover. And so we find Jesus Christ as the Paschal Lamb here in Jerusalem at Passover time because he is that Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Paul connected Christ with Passover when he said in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. And then there are other passages of Scripture that link Jesus to the Passover. Philip preached to the eunuch in Acts chapter 8 from Isaiah chapter 53. And we read these verses in Acts 8. The place of the Scripture which he read, that is the eunuch was reading, was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch was reading that. And then we see what happened in verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture. And preached unto him Jesus. Jesus is the lamb of... Of Isaiah chapter 53, Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. And then John the Baptist connected him. In John 1.29, the next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus was the Passover Lamb. And he was there at the exact time that he intended to be because that was according to the Father's predetermined time. And so he was betrayed and he was crucified according to the divine schedule. Now, that actually comes clearly into focus as we consider, fourthly, man's plot. Verse number 3. Then assembled together the chief priests and the elders, uh, scribes and the elders of the people under the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, let's take just a moment to consider who these men were that were planning to kill Jesus. These are the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now, that's basically the Supreme Court of Israel. Now, our Supreme Court, I think, is almost as evil as these guys. Uh, If Jesus appeared before our Supreme Court, the very same thing would happen. They would have him crucified. But here we have this religious group, the Sanhedrin which was more corrupt than even the Romans themselves. And this was not the beginning of their plot, because there are several times in Matthew that we see it was their long-standing in uh, 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 long intention to kill him. Now, returning to chapter 12, that chapter begins, actually, with the precipitating event for the cross. Tensions start to boil over because of what happened in Matthew chapter 12, and that was when Jesus defied the interpretation, the Jews' interpretation about what it was lawful to do on the Sabbath. You see, the laws about the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath, were actually at the heart of Jewish jurisprudence. And the interpretation of the Sabbath governed everything. And so when Jesus told them that their beliefs about what they could do on the Sabbath was dead wrong. That was like driving a stake into their hearts. All of their authority was vested in the laws that they'd made about the Sabbath. And so if that vanishes, then so does the power of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so they hated Jesus for that. And the main source of that hatred we find right there in chapter 12, it starts to build in that chapter as Jesus defied what they thought about the Sabbath. Oh, there are many other reasons for the contempt, but it hit the boiling point in chapter 12. So here's what we read in the 14th verse. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him how they might destroy him. Now that was their long-standing intention, but they'd not yet been able to accomplish it. And so this meeting in chapter 26 was to figure out how and when that it would be done. Now, you'll also notice that this meeting was held in the house of a high priest who was named Caiaphas. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that his name was actually Joseph Caiaphas and that he'd been appointed by the predecessor of Pontius Pilate in the year A.D. 18. Now, his house, that, where this meeting took place, was not just a house. The scripture says it was a palace. And that's because Caiaphas was a very rich man. And you might note this, that whenever you see Caiaphas in Scripture, he has one purpose, to get Jesus. He's at the head of this plot to get Jesus. Now here's a man who's corrupt, he was despicable, he was a murderer, as we'll soon find out, and he led this evil cesspool of religious frauds who desperately wanted to grind Jesus into the dust. And why do you suppose they had such hatred? I mean, look at the life of Jesus. How insane would it be to kill somebody like Jesus when he'd done so much for the people? Isn't it a bit insane to take a person who was a healer, who physically saved Israel from every disease that was known to man and to kill him? Isn't it kind of insane to take this man who was able to calm seas, the one who's able to raise people from the dead? The one who could heal people even from congenital defects? And your best faith healer today can't do that. Isn't it insane to take a person like that and to kill him? Well, why did they hate him so much? Well, we mentioned the Sabbath. We can also take some other hints from what he said in chapter 23. If you're offended by me calling you insane, then you should have attended one of Jesus' sermons. Here's are some of his favorite words hypocrisy, or you're a hypocrite. Blind guides, children of hell, fools, full of dead men's bones, murderers, whited sepulchres. That would be interesting, wouldn't it, if we handed each of those voters coming through the door on Tuesday, you, you're full of dead men's bones. You're a whited sepulchre. You stink inwardly. You're a hypocrite. They wouldn't want to come here to vote. I don't think if we were going to do that. But that's what Jesus said. That's the kind of preaching that he fed these people. And then he told them that their religious empire was going to be torn down and their house would be left desolate. That they were going to lose all of their power and their prestige. But you want to know that what really stuck in the crawl of Caiaphas himself? What was it that upset Caiaphas so much? Well, we link it to this word, palace. And that's because Caiaphas was a very rich man and he had to pay for his palace. Now, let's see what Jesus did to Caiaphas. If you turn back a few pages to chapter 21. Now, we've studied this uh, a few months ago. Chapter 21 and verse number 12. And you're familiar with it. Chapter 21, verse 12, And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Now the system of extortion that fueled the sale of sacrificial animals at the temple funneled all of the proceeds into the coffers of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was making a fortune. And here at the busiest time of the year. When Jerusalem had swelled to ten times its population. For the observance of Passover. Jesus cut off the money supply. And there wasn't anything that Caiaphas could do about it. Jesus had the support of the people. And, and these guys at the temple. They, they, had been, they had been gouging people for years. And so the people were very upset. And so Jesus became the champion of the little man. Caiaphas couldn't do anything about it. His cronies were helpless over this, and so they wanted to kill him. But they knew that the time wasn't right. They couldn't do it. Now, they tried to kill him in Nazareth by throwing him off a cliff, but Jesus got away. They tried to kill him at the pool of Bethesda, but that didn't work. Jesus got away again. Uh, They just couldn't make this happen. And then they couldn't do it at the temple, of course, when he drove those money changers, those thieves, out of the temple. Later in chapter 21, they asked him, where did you get the authority to do all of these things? Where where do you get the authority to do these actions? And Jesus just put down all of their arguments, and they were so confounded by what Jesus said, the Bible says they dared not ask him another question. Well, the people were on Jesus' side, so Caiaphas and the priests and the elders, all of them, they feared the people. And that helps us to return to the subject of God's sovereignty. In our text, this corrupt court assembled to decide how and when that they were going to get their hands on him. Now see what they say in verse 5? But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. So they were going to kill him. They were determined to do it, but not on the feast day. Now you see, they were insane, but they weren't stupid. And you can figure out how that works but not on the feast day. And the reason, says reason is they feared an uproar from the people. Now let me give you a little bit of insight on that statement. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 19. And while you're looking for that scripture, let me kind of set you up for what we're going to read there. Caiaphas was a very unusual high priest. The appointment for the high priest had, had passed from the dictates of the ceremonial law of the Jews to become a political appointment by the Romans. And that was the custom in all the places that Rome conquered. What they would do is they would appoint the high priest of whatever religion it was of the people that they conquered. Caiaphas was unusual because of the amount of time that he served as the high priest. He was the son-in-law of Annas. Annas had served for nine years, and that was quite unusual for that time because in many places where the Romans had conquered, where they appointed a high priest, he might only last for a year. But not Annas and not Caiaphas. And Caiaphas was really unusual because he was so good to the Romans and so good for the Romans that he lasted for 20 years. Now, what was it that Rome liked? Well, they liked people that could keep the peace. You see, Rome, the empire, was spread out. And what they didn't want to do is to be constantly going here and there and fighting political fires and religious fires, beating all of that back. And so they were happy with anybody that they appointed who could keep the peace. And Caiaphas was good at it. He was unusually good at this. And if he didn't keep the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, then he was gone for sure. So he was not about to start a riot by taking Jesus at the Feast of Passover. Now let's look at this example of the fear of losing the peace in this story in Acts chapter 19. This is the Apostle Paul at Ephesus, and he caused quite a stir with his preaching and the conversion of many of the people that had been worshipping the goddess Diana, and they had turned to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And there were so many people that were being saved that it upset the trade of the silversmiths in the city who were making little images of the goddess Diana and of the temple, that great magnificent temple that was at Ephesus. And just like Caiaphas, you can mess with a lot of things, but what you don't mess with is people's money. And so there was a guild of the silversmiths who got together and they got into an uproar over what Paul had did with his preaching or done with preaching. Now look at verse number 24. It says, For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth, Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. So that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. Now folks, that part of it was a ruse because they didn't care at all about the worship of Diana. It was the money that was the problem. And so it says, And when they heard these sayings, when the people heard what they said, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion and having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. So now, look out. Because there is a riot in Ephesus. Now go down to verse 40. The town clerk who had charge of the city said this For we are in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar, there being no cause whereby we may give an account of this concourse. And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. In other words, what he said heads are going to roll if Rome finds out about this. And he meant, My head is going to roll. Because he was in charge of keeping the peace of the city. And so heads will roll if he doesn't restore order. Now that's the very same thing that Caiaphas and the priest feared. Jesus was popular. And if they were to take him at the time of the feast when Jerusalem was filled with all these pilgrims, many of which came from Galilee, which is the place where Jesus was the most popular, then they knew we're going to have a riot on our hands and there's going to be a mob action. Now, you know what happens with crowds. There is a mob mentality. You see it there in, 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 at Ephesus that when this thing was taking place and the riot started, there were many people who had no idea what was going on. They just knew that there's some activity, something bad happened. We want to get in on it. So get in on it. There's a mob here, so let's join in on it. They don't have any idea what's going on. Now, that's what happens when you see loo- looting and rioting by a bunch of insane fools who burn down their own neighborhoods. And they say, we're poor. We are oppressed. The, go- the government and people, we're being oppressed. And just to show you how upset we are, we're going to destroy everything we own. That's a mob mentality. Pretty dumb. Pretty insane, isn't it? O well, Caiaphas and the leaders said, we're not insane. Not on the feast day. Lest we have a riot. Well, let's go back to verse number 2. And we'll see about that. You know that after two days, Jesus said, is the feast of the Passover. And the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. They said, as bad as we want Him. As bad as we want to kill Him. This is not going to happen on the feast day. Well, we'll see about that. Jesus said, two days is the feast of the Passover. And it's going to happen. Who's right about that? He's the Passover lamb. When do you kill the Passover lamb? Now I'm sorry Caiaphas. But there's 4,000 years of of history. 4,000 years of God's plan to deal with here. You've got the type of the Passover with Moses 1500 years before this. You've got the prophecy of Isaiah in which John the Baptist appears, and John the Baptist is the one who came and said, This is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So, who is a fool? Who is the one who is insane? It's the one who stands in front of a loaded prophecy train going downhill at 100 miles per hour. That's the fool. Now to see it, you take a look at Acts chapter 2. Jesus already said that he was going to the cross. He stated that back in chapter 16. At the right time, he set his face towards Jerusalem to go there for Passover. Caiaphas and what they would do and all his crazies that, had, that was no concern of his. And you know why it wasn't? Peter tells us in his sermon on Pentecost. He was speaking to those that were complicit in crucifying Jesus. He said, "Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. A few verses later in our chapter 26, Jesus said at the Lord's Supper, And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. The determinant counsel and foreknowledge of God. So who was it that killed Jesus? Oh, the Jews and the Romans were the instruments. But God was the facilitator. They did what they wanted to do. Judas did what he wanted to do. But God's the one who put them together and made it happen. So he had a plan that governed man's plot. They didn't act when they wanted to act. They acted when God said that they would act. And so Jesus could tell them who took his life. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received Of my Father. And then going further, when they had Jesus on the cross, he chose the exact moment that he would die. Luke 23, verse 46. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Pilate marveled that Jesus had so soon died. He sent soldiers to break the legs which would hasten the death of the men on the cross. And when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. He did his work, and then he died. Well, let's go to another scripture. John chapter 19. You have to mark well this word sovereignty. It's insanity for people to stand in the way of God's sovereignty. John chapter 19. As we look here, you might think that Jesus was insane when he said what he said. He was standing in front of Pilate, the one who represented the power of the Roman government, the very one that Caiaphas feared that if he upset Pilate, that Pilate would have him on a cross. But Jesus didn't have that kind of fear. John 19, verse 5, Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man... When the chief priest, therefore, and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him, and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate, therefore, heard that saying, he was the more afraid. Now, folks, there's the only time that we see Pilate was not insane. And he went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all against me, except that were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Now was Jesus insane? No. Because nothing happens until he says that it happens. Nothing happens unless it's in the way that he says that it's going to happen. So here you have it, folks. The pinnacle of history is not a random event. One thing didn't just lead to another, and so here we are. There are some people who believe and some people who don't believe, and that's all a crapshoot. No. God orchestrates all events of history. And you ought not to think that God has suddenly turned loose of the thing that brings him the most glory, the death of Jesus Christ and of the people who believe in him, the faith of the people who believe in him. Now, I don't have time to go through 300 Old Testament prophecies about the coming of Christ and about what he would do. And I know that you really want me to because you don't want this sermon to end. But I'm not going to go through those 300 prophecies. But there's enough right here in this scripture to show you who it is that controls your life, And whether you want to admit it or not, that person is God. Jesus Christ is the one who divides time. He's the one who controls history. Every breath that you take is by permission of his divine good pleasure. Jesus is the central figure. He's the son of God who came to this earth to give himself as a sacrifice for sin. And he knew when he came what it would cost. And there was never a moment's hesitation that he would pay the full cost of that. There was a plan. There was determination. And every detail of God's plan is fully accomplished. Now, it's insanity not to come to terms to that, terms with that. Because someday you're going to meet the one who did all of this. This whole setup. The purpose of the world and the meaning of life is wrapped up in what Jesus did that day on the cross of Calvary. And he did it to bring him glory. There we see actually a cruel death that brought him glory. And friends, I'm telling you, there's nobody but God who could ever figure out a plan like that and make it work. So what are you going to do? Well, that's a good question when it comes to this subject. Because on this particular subject, all of us are insane. So don't be offended if I called you insane because... That's exactly the way that I was. It's the way that every person in this world was without Jesus Christ. All of us are insane when it comes to the subject of Jesus Christ. And the reason that we understand now who he is is not because of some great intellect that we have. It's not because we're great Bible scholars. And it's not because we've earned a Ph.D. somewhere Well, the only reason that you understand who Jesus is is by the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. Just like it was God who killed those animals, and that was the only thing that that would work for Adam and Eve, so it is God who is the one who brings you Himself to repentance and faith in Him. He is the sovereign God. Now I told you all you had to do was to ask me, and I will tell you what this is all about. Let me give you just one more scripture. The connection between the sovereignty of God and verse number 2 that we find in Matthew chapter 26 and the connection between all of this and the meaning of life is summed up here by Jesus in Matthew chapter 17. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. What is the meaning of life? Did you know that you were created not just for this life? That you have an eternal soul? The meaning of life is stated right here by Jesus, to know God through him, to know God through Jesus Christ. This is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That is a very simple, sane answer to the meaning of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you did have a sovereign plan. If we had been able to interfere with that plan and do what we would want to do, then no one in the world would ever be saved. We couldn't be saved. No one would be saved. We just thank you, Lord, that you planned it all. You made sure that you accomplished it all. And by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, everyone that was intended to know you as Savior will come to know you as Savior. But we pray for those today who don't know you, that you would open their eyes to the gospel because no one becomes a Christian, no one becomes a child of God, no one is on his way to heaven until he realizes the gospel and believes the gospel of Jesus Christ. Speak to someone today, Lord, and just show how insane it is to choose hell over heaven. Strengthen your people today, Lord, and help us to realize once again we depend on you and only you. We can do nothing for ourselves. You are sovereign over all affairs of this life. Speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronit Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronard Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.